0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable & Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable, of Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, I want to uh, thank you all for your continued support of Surety Today and wish everybody a happy uh, March Madness. May the odds uh, ever be in your favor and also an early uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Remember, you can listen to any, you know, one or all of our prior 80 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from any one of our multiple platforms on our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, just search for Surety Today and also on our micro site, suretytoday.net. As of today, we've had just over 9,600 downloads of our podcast. So join the fun. As always, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end uh, for any questions. So today I am going to talk about joint ventures. Uh, joint ventures are common in the construction industry. I'm dealing with several right now. One is uh, is known as Clark Banks Joint Venture. It's a joint venture between Clark Construction and Banks Contracting. Another is the uh, Walsh-Gilbane Joint Venture, a joint venture between Walsh Construction and, and Gilbane Building Company. And a third is an as-yet-unadmitted joint venture, which is masquerading as a teaming arrangement, and we're currently... Working on unmasking this joint venture as part of our surety defense in that case. So stay tuned on that. Contractors, you know, they they choose this form of business for a, a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's it's because the project is so large that it takes the combined efforts of multiple contractors to be able to handle the project. I think that was the case with the the Wall joint venture because. The project was massive, $206 million, 275,000 square feet of uh, -of state-of-the-art government medical research facilities with labs and its own power facility. So sometimes uh, one of the contractors provides the financial wherewithal while the other provides a valuable connection or relationship with an owner. Sometimes one of the members is small and needs a larger member to pull off the project. Forming a joint venture allows the parties to pool their resources, their equipment, their labor, talents, skills, you know, to complete a, a potentially lucrative project. Sometimes the choice isn't about the business form. It's about choosing to improperly get around the socioeconomic program requirements. So you have a large contractor using an 8A contractor to land a sole source government set-aside contract. Then The large contractor performs the work and keeps the line's share of the profit. In that scenario the parties will not call themselves a joint venture, but a court may find that their arrangement was nonetheless a de facto joint venture. In this episode we'll explore joint ventures, you know, what they are, why a surety should care and how you can determine if a relationship is really a joint venture or just, you know, a garden variety contractor, subcontractor arrangement. Spoiler alert, the the existence of a joint venture in the right circumstances can lead to a surety defense. So let's uh, begin at the beginning. What is a joint venture? A joint venture has been defined as an association or undertaking of two or more persons or entities to jointly carry out a single business enterprise for profit. New York law holds that a, a joint venture is formed when one, Two or more persons enter into an agreement to carry on a venture for profit. Two, the agreement evinces their intent to be joint ventures. Three, each contributes property, financing, skill, knowledge, or effort. Four, each has some degree of joint control over the venture. And five, provision is made for the sharing of both profits and losses. In the past, joint ventures were frequently referred to as joint adventures. The, that adds sort of an air of excitement to the enterprise, right? You're going on an adventure. When you look back at some of the joint ventures you, you come across, you know, you wonder how the parties ever thought they would ever get along or even turn a profit. It looked more like a an adventure in fiction. But the joint ventures have also been referred to as a partnership for a single transaction. Generally, a joint venture is considered to be indistinguishable from a partnership for all important purposes. Under New Jersey law, for example, a joint venture is held to be very similar to a partnership with the only difference being that joint venture relationships tend to be more informal and usually limited to a single undertaking or transaction, although the conduct of that enterprise may continue for a number of years. And so in the construction world, you see that joint ventures uh, going on for years. The, the Walsh Gilbane project that we have uh, Uh, You know, the big uh, medical research facility that's been going on for, man, seven years, I guess. So it's crazy. Indeed, under many states laws, a joint venture is considered to be a partnership and is governed by the Uniform Partnership Act. Under Maryland law, for example, the code provides that the unincorporated association of two or more persons to carry on as co-owners, a business for profit forms a partnership whether or not the person's intended to form a partnership and whether or not the association is called a partnership, a joint venture, or any other name. Accordingly, when you're dealing with these issues relating to joint ventures, you can usually turn to the law of partnerships for guidance. U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York uh, addressing joint ventures observed as follows, quote, precise definition of a joint venture is difficult. The cases are of little help since they are generally restricted to their own peculiar facts. Each case depends, of course, for its results on its own facts. And owing to the multifariousness of facts, no case of co-adventure rises higher than a persuasive precedent for another. You don't get to see the word multifariousness too often in a quote, but there you have it. Be that as it may, distilling the research down reveals that The essential elements of a joint venture are typically identified as 1, the intent of the parties to be associated as joint ventures, 2, mutual contribution to the joint undertaking, 3, shared joint control over the venture, and 4, sharing of profits and losses. While there must be mutual control in a joint venture, the requirement need not extend to every aspect of the venture. A joint venturer may entrust actual control of the operation to his co-venturer, and it still remains a joint venture. Joint venturers may agree that responsibility for a particular tasks shall reside with less than all of the venturers. Similarly, while contribution of resources is generally necessary, it's not necessary that the parties furnish contributions in equal amounts, nor need the contributions be for the sa- of the same character. So, you know one party may contribute property or equipment, and the other party may contribute money, skills, or other resources. In determining whether a joint venture exists, the sharing of profits is prima facie evidence that the association is a joint venture. However, mere sharing of profits is not conclusive, and other factors must be considered. It's been observed that while the presence of a profit motive is a precondition of a joint venture, the case law strongly emphasizes that profit sharing alone does not make a business arrangement a joint venture. The case law recognizes that there are many circumstances where a share of the profit can be a legitimate form of compensation. Rather, it's the sharing of losses, not just profits alone, which can be uh, a critical indicator of joint venture status. You know, if you think about it, if you're agreeing to to come out of pocket to fund a loss on a project. That's a very strong evidence of of an ownership interest in, in the arrangement. A joint venture can be established even when the members have not formulated their status in full detail. Indeed, the agreement need not assume a particular form or be formally executed. It may be expressed or implied and need not necessarily even be in writing. Where there is no express agreement, the question of whether a joint venture exists is to be gathered from the intentions of the parties, revealed by their conduct and circumstances surrounding their relationship and the transactions between them. The agreement, whether implied, explicit, or a combination of the two, will be interpreted and its validity tested under the normal rules of contract construction. The existence of a joint venture Uh, will not be presumed, but instead must always be proven. In other words, joint ventures will never arise by operation of law. The burden of proving the existence of a joint venture is upon the party who asserts that it exists. Thus, an assertion by a surety that a Miller Act claimant is a joint venture will be treated as an affirmative defense that must be proven by the surety. For this reason, it's it's rarely uh, appropriate for a court to make such a finding on a motion to dismiss the basis, there will usually need to be more factual development. So this brings us to the, the next issue of, well, you know, why do we care? Why, why does a surety care if there's a joint venture relationship on a bonded project? And the answer is because it's well established under federal law that a bond claimant who is a joint venturer with the bonded principal cannot recover under a Miller Act payment bond. The Miller Act was enacted, of course, to ensure that subcontractors are paid for labor and materials expended on federal projects. Conversely, the Miller Act payment bond was not designed to protect the bonded principal. Thus, it is generally conceded that a partner or a joint venture in the contract itself or a portion of it would not be one of those protected by the Miller Act. In one case uh, out of the district court, Uh, of Wyoming, the the court stated as follows, quote, it seems quite evident that the rule of law should be that a joint adventurer under these circumstances should not be permitted to recover upon a bond given to guarantee the fulfillment of the contract of his co-adventurer. The duty of the contractor to fulfill the provisions of his contract are no more imperative than those of one who is jointly interested with him in its success. The obligations are the same, to wit, to see that the contract is fulfilled in every particular before a surety should be compelled to answer for the default. As a matter of fact, the principal contractor might as well be entitled to recover for his own default against his own surety as to permit one jointly interested with him in its success to do so. So such a rule of law would open the door to fraud of a serious type, end quote. So basically, the the joint venture defense boils down to the concept that a a principal cannot make a claim against its own bond. And therefore, the joint venturer or partner of the principal in the project cannot make a claim against the bond either. The surety does not bond the relationship between the joint partners. That is not what the Miller Act is uh, implemented for. If they made a bad uh, business deal, that's on them. That's not the surety. One of the best ways to to understand the concept is to see some examples of it in in action. So let's look at uh, some of the cases arising uh, or rather addressing this issue. Uh, In the first case, uh, concrete works and paving versus great Midwest insurance comes out of the um, the Southern District of Florida uh, 2020. The court granted the surety's motion for summary judgment, finding that the claimant was a joint venturer with the bond principal. In the case, Concrete Works uh, sued the surety for payment under two bonds issued with Pioneer Construction as the principal for two public projects. Concrete Works alleged that it subcontracted with Pioneer to provide labor and materials for the projects, that it performed the work in a timely workmanlike manner that the work had been accepted by the project owners and that Pioneer failed to pay. The surety argued that Concrete Works acted as a de facto joint venture with Pioneer on the projects and was therefore ineligible to receive payment from the bonds. Now, the undisputed facts established the following. First, Concrete, Wor- Concrete Works was not eligible to bid on the projects because it did not have bonding capacity. Concrete Works was not a Florida-certified business enterprise as required by one of the project owners. Pioneer was. The contracts required Pioneer to perform 75% of the work itself. It did not do this. The contracts prohibited assignment of work or payments. Pioneer agreed to pay 97% on one project and 93% on the other uh, of the contract amounts to Concrete Works in exchange for Concrete Works, supplying labor and materials for the projects, Concrete Works was never listed as a subcontractor on either project. Concrete Works uh, subcontracted with a company called OMB to provide labor on the projects in exchange for a 50-50 split. So you have a further uh, splitting of the the revenue here. Concrete Works obtained equipment and trucks and placed pioneers logos on them. That's uh, a subterfuge. Concrete Works owner uh, and sole employee, uh, Alvaro Medina, served as the project manager for Pioneer on both projects. Medina represented himself as Pioneer's project manager and prepared uh, billings and payments and uh, CBE reporting for Pioneer. Medina knowingly misrepresented on monthly CBE reports to one project owner that Pioneer had performed at least 65% of the work. Instead, the work was performed by OMB. The undisputed facts clearly established that Concrete Works and Pioneer set up a relationship to secure the projects. Pioneer had bonding capabilities and CBE status. Concrete Works had neither. Pioneer reported to do the work, but it did not. Concrete Works did. Medina, as project manager, had the authority to bind Pioneer. Concrete Works was not paid for time and materials. Rather, it shared in the payments for the for the project on a percentage basis. The party's course of conduct revealed an intention to act, <laughs> to act as joint venturers, not as con- contractor, subcontractor. Concrete Works argued that no joint venture existed because Pioneer and Concrete Works did not share losses. However, under Florida law, an agreement to share losses as joint venturers can exist as a matter of law where one party Supplies labor and skill; the other supplies capital, and both agree to share in the profits of the venture. Based on the intentions of the parties, evidence uh, by the as evidenced by the undisputed facts, the court concluded, as a matter of law, that Concrete Works and Pioneer established a joint venture for the projects. As a joint venture with Pioneer, Concrete Works was not permitted to recover under the payment bonds. That seems like a pretty straightforward case. Uh, there probably should have been uh, some False Claims Act uh, allegations in here too, because they clearly uh, committed fraud and violated all of the uh, the requirements there. So let's look at a second case in the uh, United States use of Walker versus United States, or USF and G uh, out of the District of Wyoming. The the evidence showed that a joint venture existed between two parties in connection with construction uh, of of a federal highway. As a result, the claim against the bond by one one of the joint ventures was rejected by the court. The facts show that the parties opened a joint account in a bank for the purpose of transacting business together regarding several road contracts. Checks and remittances arising from the road contracts were deposited into the account, and checks were written from the account under the joint signatures of both parties on printed checks bearing the names of both parties to pay for services and materials which went into the performance of the several projects. The parties subsequently jointly borrowed money for the purpose of completing the projects. The court observed that the, the mass of correspondence introduced into evidence tended strongly to substantiate the theory that both parties were mutually interested in the success of the various projects. The claimant contended that no absolute written agreement was ever consummated, carrying the joint venture into definite form. The Court held that such argument was unavailing when the evidence showed that regardless of whether a formal written agreement existed, the admitted activities of the parties left the unmistakable inference that they were acting jointly and considered themselves jointly responsible for the success of the ventures. Likewise, the court noted that with with all the accruing funds in one purse, It leaves the inference that the profits, if any, would be eventually marshaled and divided. Accordingly, the court held that there can be no other finding in the case, but that the parties were joint adventurers. Finally, let's look at the third case. Uh, It's Briggs versus Grubb out of the Ninth Circuit. The Bureau of Reclamation contracted with Grubb to relocate a road connection, uh, road in connection with the Trinity Dam project located in uh, Northern California. United Pacific Insurance Company was the Miller Act surety for Grubb. Grubb was an Oregon contractor and had never undertaken a California job, nor a job as large as this contract. Gotta wonder where the underwriting was. As a result, Grubb sought assistance from J.W. Briggs, a California contractor. Briggs just happened to be one of the unsuccessful bidders on the Trinity Dam Road project as well. After several meetings, the parties reached an agreement under which Briggs had assumed, for all practical purposes, the entire management of the job. Briggs uh, subsequently transferred Grubb's employees to Briggs' own payroll, took over receiving and paying for most of the labor and materials used on the job, and assumed full management of the job. It was also agreed that Grubb would pay money to another company that was entirely owned by Briggs. Briggs contended that the payment represented a fixed fee for performance of his services, Uh, and that they paid it to the other company for tax reasons. Sounds like tax avoidance. At the time of the agreement um, with Briggs, Grubb was in serious financial difficulty. United Pacific alleged that Briggs knew of the financial condition of Grubb. As work progressed and and progress payments were made to Grubb, Grubb did not pay over the full amount of the progress payments to Briggs. Instead, uh, he diverted a portion of each uh, payment to the satisfaction of bills of other unrelated jobs. United Pacific alleged that this was done with the full knowledge of Briggs and with the purpose of allowing Grubb to bail himself out of his financial difficulties by diverting funds from the Trinity Dam project um, progress payments. As a result of the funds diversion, several subs and suppliers were not paid. Eventually, United Pacific took over the contract and completed the job. Subsequently, Grubb filed for bankruptcy and Briggs asserted a claim against the bond. Assured contended that Briggs had become a partner or joint venture and was therefore barred from recovery under the payment bond. The trial court agreed. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the lower court's judgment. The appellate court listed a number of actions by Briggs that that pushed the relationship between the parties into the joint venture category. First, Briggs assumed the payroll and disbursements of the entire project. Second, he he approved all the bills. Third, uh, he chose the other subs for the project. Fourth, he had knowledge of Grubb's financial condition and misuse of funds. Taking these actions as a whole, the Ninth Circuit agreed uh, with the trial court that Briggs and Grubb had become joint ventures. and as a result, Briggs was not entitled to maintain a claim against the surety. So those are some examples of the of the defense in action, if you will. Um, you know, and you see you see a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different fact patterns that can arise, but basically, If you can get uh, the parties into the joint venture uh, category, then you can make your argument that that the claimant's not gonna be entitled to assert a claim against the bond. So a question when you're looking at this is, well, what law applies um, to the analysis? If you're dealing with the Miller Act, federal law will provide uh, the scope of the remedy as well as the substance of the rights created uh, and not the state law. The liability of a Miller Act surety is controlled by federal law because the determination, uh, you know, the extent of the liability involves construction of a federal statute under which it was created. If you're dealing with a a little Miller Act or private bond, you'll need to consider the state law in the applicable jurisdiction. While, While in many jurisdictions, the courts will look to decisions under the Miller Act for guidance on state law, especially when interpreting the similar little Miller Act statutes, This is not always the case. Uh, One case out of uh, the Northern District of California, the court acknowledged the federal authorities applying the joint venture defense in Miller Act cases, but stated that there was no indication in any of the California state authority that California law followed the federal prescription in cases interpreting the Miller Act prohibiting joint ventures from recovery. Therefore, the court denied the surety's most summary judgment on the basis that It could not rule as a matter of law that the claimant could not make a claim against the surety as a a possible joint venture. Similarly, in uh, Toporoff Engineers versus Fireman's Fund uh, out of the Second Circuit, the Court of Appeals reasoned that uh, circumstances under which a joint venture may be precluded from claiming under a surety bond was not settled under New York state law at the time, 2004, and therefore the federal preclusion under the Miller Act did not apply. So you need to be mindful of what law uh, applies in your particular circumstance and whether uh, the jurisdiction will will follow the uh, joint venture defense. So how do you determine if a joint venture exists? How does the surety claims handler spot a joint venture? While there does not appear to be a hard and fast rule for determining whether a joint venture exists, sureties uh, addressing the issue will generally need to conduct the analysis by examining the, the agreements uh, between the parties, as well as the conduct of the parties during the relevant time period. So first, you, you look at the agreement between the parties to determine if it supports the conclusion that a traditional contractor, subcontractor, general contractor relationship exists, or whether a joint venture exists. And this exercise, you'll begin by looking at the title, right? The terminology of the contract. Is it—is it titled a subcontract? How are the parties identified or designated? Are they contractor, subcontractor, or are they partners? Next, uh, analyze how the agreement addresses the work to be performed. Who, who will perform what? Who has control over what? Who will be paid what? You should look for language regarding the sharing of profits and losses, keeping in mind that just because there is some sharing of profits, that is not necessarily conclusive. What contributions are being made in terms of capital, equipment, resources, etc.? The mere use of the word venture in in an agreement between two parties uh, for a division of the profits of a business does not in and of itself make it a joint venture. However, while the fact that the parties to a contract designated as a joint venture um, may not necessarily be conclusive, it is certainly one of the elements to be considered. Of course, if the parties have entered into an express, express written joint venture agreement, the task is easier. And, then, and there have been cases where the parties have done just that. You would think that such a case would be a slam dunk for the surety. Typically, it would be, but there are uh, several cases where even even where the parties had described their association as a joint venture partnership, the court was still unwilling to grant the surety's defense on preliminary or procedural motions. In these cases, the courts wanted to see more. They, they wanted to see evidence that there actually was a joint venture in practice, not just the words. The vast majority of cases, um, you know, the parties will not make it easy. They will not enter into an express written joint venture agreement or refer to themselves as joint venturers or partners. Indeed, they will typically, um, you know, deny such a relationship exists. Uh, according to the surety will need to be looking for more than what the parties said or wrote. You'll need to analyze the conduct and, and all of the surrounding circumstances. One thing to look for is the parties performing administrative tasks or functions that are out of the ordinary. You know, a blurring of the organizational responsibilities can create a reasonable basis upon which a fact finder could conclude that the relationship resulted in a joint venture between the parties. Also, where there is an overlapping control of the parties, common ownership or leadership, can indicate uh, the existence of a joint venture. In one case, the court looked to evidence that the alleged subcontractor was submitting documents as the quote-unquote administrator of the project for the purported general contractor, including payment requests to the government. Even though the purported uh, subcontractor argued that there was no joint venture and the the subcontractor um, could agree to, to serve as an administrator for the general, the court found that the submissions created a question of fact as to whether the relationship went beyond the boundaries contemplated of a normal relationship. Another red flag is if employees of the one company are placed on the payroll of the other. You see this when a large company and a small company have joined together to perform a contract. In one case, the court focused on one party's assumption of the other's payroll as a key factor in finding that a joint venture existed. Such action is um, evidence of a commingling of the fiscal responsibilities between the allegedly separate entities. And so the one case we discussed, you see the the joint bank account with the joint names on the checks, all the money coming into that account and going out of that account under joint signatures. You know, once you see that, that's a big red flag that, that you're talking about a joint venture. Another factor to look for is if there is a sharing of the losses. Even if the parties did not expressly state an agreement to share losses, the party's conduct can support a reasonable inference that such an agreement in fact or practice existed. In one case, both parties assumed debts that normally uh, would be attributed to the other party. The court noted that a a reasonable inference of such conduct is that an implied agreement to share in losses associated with the endeavor existed. A co-mingling of funds can also satisfy the sharing of losses factor and give rise to a joint venture. Another key factor that is uh, indicative of, uh, of a joint venture is whether parties have a typical right, uh, an atypical right to control the performance of the work. So a subcontractor does not does not normally schedule the project or manage other subs. A general contractor does not normally direct the subcontractor's labor. So you look for the commingling of control as evidence of, of a joint venture. Okay, so that's uh that's what I have, and we are at the time limit here. Um, good good hunting if you're looking out there for. Uh, for joint ventures as your defense. Let me um, uh, let me see here, I'll do the closing first. Okay, before I open up the line for any questions, uh, I wanna let everyone know that the next episode of Surety Today will be on Monday, April 10th at 12.30, of course. Upcoming events on March 29th through the 31st, the 34th Annual Southern Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference will be held in Savannah, Georgia. I'm really looking forward to this conference and, and Savannah's a great city. I hope to see you there. It's, it's not too late to register. I understand they just extended the hotel registration, so uh, you can get in on that action. On April 19th, the Philadelphia Surety Claim Association will hold its lunch meeting in Philadelphia. Our speaker for that uh, meeting will be JS Held, uh, and they'll be discussing building envelope issues. So thank you to everyone for joining me today. Now let me open up the line. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, we're in talk mode. So any questions out there? (laughs) I hear noise, but not questions. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thank you and um, look forward to speaking with everybody next month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable & Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.